welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. We bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering a gender-setting insight from inside the game from David and our writers from across The Athletic. So coming up today, we'll bring you details of Jurgen Klopp's new contract. Uh, we'll look at the fallout following an eventful weekend for Mesut Ozil. And David will bring you the very latest on Arsenal's search for a new manager. You'll hear from Rafael Benitez as well before the pod is out. We're going to start with Mesut Ozil, both on and off the pitch, really, David, because he had a difficult day against Manchester City, but he's had a difficult time within the club as well. Yeah, he has. I mean, he's had a difficult couple of years, you could say, with being in and out of favour, in and out of form, various controversies, meeting President Erdogan in London and then having him as um, a special guest at his wedding last summer. Before you go on to Mesut let me do the Please, details. Yeah. So that Because James McNicholas has written about this uh, on The Athletic. It's a fascinating, fascinating article. So go to The Athletic and read that. But basically, Mesut Ozil uh, released a statement, basically, yep. didn't he, on the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China. Following that, uh, the Chinese state broadcaster removed the Arsenal-Manchester City game from their schedules yesterday. Now, there is a precedent here, not necessarily in our football, uh, but certainly uh, across the pond in America, certainly in the NBA. Daryl Morey, the Houston Rockets GM, uh, tweeted in support of Hong Kong, at which point all hell broke loose <laughs> in the NBA. Chinese companies stopped doing business with the Rockets. Mm. Um, they, uh, the Chinese internet company, which pays the NBA, NBA $1.5 billion to stream its games online, said they wouldn't show the Rockets uh, games or news on its network. And the Rockets owner then had to try and distance the team from the tweet yep. of the general manager. And Arsenal have had to do something similar here, haven't they? For for whatever you think, rightly or wrongly, for business reasons. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, they, they probably wouldn't have said anything if that wasn't the case. They didn't say anything in the case of Hector Bellerin, who tweeted long political lines on gen- general election day. The feeling from Arsenal was that that carried far less traction than the Ozil situation, which became a sort of worldwide incident. Arsenal distancing themselves uh, and and expressing that these were his views and that they don't necessarily share them and that it was freedom of speech is clearly, from their perspective, a diplomatic move. Uh, We know the sort of levels of investment that Arsenal and all the Premier League clubs receive from China. It's my understanding that the Premier League were quick to write to Arsenal and offer support and advice if needed. Um, I've also heard suggestions that some sort of pressure was being applied from China on the Premier League to pull or curtail some of their coverage around yesterday's game. So this is an incredibly serious issue that's being dealt with behind the scenes. All parties have uh, gone to ground on it. They won't speak, they won't offer guidance, they won't provide any statements or clarity. It's a really sensitive moment. Uh, what I do know is that Mesut Ozil feels extremely strongly about this. Uh, he knew the reaction, not only from the NBA precedent, but just the way that China deals with these sorts of things. I mean, he has been wiped, wiped from the internet in, uh, in China. His his social media accounts are gone. His fan club has been taken offline. He, <laughs> he has disappeared online in China, if you read James McNicholas's article. We're led to believe uh, the fan club, which uh, has 30,000 registered members, is being shut down and um, uh, fans in China, 
members of this club are being uh, told to choose basically between their own country and Mesut Ozil. It, it was told to us that uh, members of that fan club have been in tears about the, the issue. Uh, Ozil, you can find his name apparently if you search to do with this particular issue, but none of the background or his career or anything like that. And he doesn't care. He's standing up for what he believes in. He has been told by some people, why don't you do this in four or five years time later in your career or once you've retired, then make a stand. Why are you getting involved in internal issues within China? This is an issue that is close to his heart. He wants to deal with it now while he feels people are suffering and he's prepared to take the consequences that that come with it. For Arsenal, they could say it's a no-win situation. Not ideal for them that he's speaking out, but equally they, they respect his... Um, his uh, freedom of speech um, but all round it, it's a very complicated issue that's not going away. So this is what I really want to get into on, on this pod, not necessarily the beliefs of Mesut Ozil but the fact that he is unusual in being a sports person who puts his head above the parapet and talks about issues that bother him. And Hector Bellerin, as you said, did the same with the general election. I go back to the Euros in 2016, and I can remember England players being asked whether Brexit had been discussed. Mm -hmm. You might have been in those press conferences. (laughs) Whether Brexit had been discussed, and them just shutting it down. No, we're not discussing it. We're here to play football. And it's very unusual for footballers in particular to give their opinions on on issues outside of football. So what I really want to drill down into is the kind of person Mesut Ozil is, because it strikes me as he's quite a brave and opinionated individual to speak on such issues, and why that doesn't necessarily translate as to the perception of him as a footballer? Well, firstly, I think it's more common for sports people to speak out about political issues outside of England. Um, yes, my experience agree, yeah. is that British sports people um, are controlled by yeah, their okay. communications staff uh, at their clubs and associations. Ozil is a thick-skinned character. He can take all the flack that comes his way. All of the on and off field issues that he's had to deal with have not affected him particularly. He has fought many battles in his path from Gelsenkirchen as a boy to um, Arsenal now in his uh, 30s. And that includes the Germany national team retirement and some unbelievably complicated stuff around that, most of which has come out, some of it didn't as well. So this is water off a duck's back for him. When he believes in something, he stands up for it. The President Erdogan situation, let's not forget that. He met with him in London. He already had a relationship with him prior to that. He also invited him as a special guest to his wedding um, and stood up for what he believed in in, in that case, which was that this is the leader of the country, that he's got um, close family and uh, heritage ties to took the flack took the criticism and that's his stance he's a thoughtful person he's quite deep he is I don't know if you'd say it's academic intelligence or just intelligence around issues going on in society this was a surprise that he stood out he stood up on this particular issue Arsenal didn't see it coming many of us didn't see it coming and it was a pretty detailed and and well-prepared statement by the looks of it. He's very close to his heritage, his roots, his beliefs, his values that have been instilled in him largely by his mother and his family. 
And so I think we're seeing somebody here that it's not ideal for a club like Arsenal, especially when you've got connections to China, etc., and you don't know statements are coming. I think there was there was some nervousness around Arsenal over whether there was going to be more coming from Ozil on this. It's really not ideal for, for these organisations, but it, that won't bother him. You sat down with him and did, did a profile piece with him on The Athletic, which you can still read on The Athletic, and it's well worth doing. If he is socially aware and opinionated and a strong individual, so criticism is, as you said, water off a duck's back, has he been, has he been mishandled by Arsenal? Do you think? Do you think there is a potential there that is untapped in him? Because the the public perception, and if I have one more pundit do an analysis run on Mesut Ozil doesn't try, mm-hmm. I think I might might scream. But the potentialism of him is, or the perception of him is, doesn't work, doesn't run around, doesn't try, doesn't care. That last bit seems in complete contrast to what you're saying about it. That yeah. he does care. A lot of this depends on who you speak to. There are people inside Arsenal and the Germany national team who really like him, are very impressed with his work rate and his commitment to the cause and others who give the complete opposite view. Um, You hear about some statistics that reflect very badly on his training and match performances and others that reflect extremely well on him. So he is a polarising figure, that's for sure. I mean, one thing that, that is clear is that Ozil needs to be around players of a similar standard to him. That was uh, the case at Real Madrid. It was the case in the Germany national team when he was flourishing. And at times it's been the case in his earlier years after joining Arsenal in 2013. But in more recent years, it's been clear that for Arsenal and you could say modern football, the the way that's been going, that you need to track back. Pretty much everyone does it at Liverpool and Manchester City and other teams. And the defensive side of the game is not something that Mesut Ozil is particularly good at or appreciates. Has he been mishandled? Certainly there have been expectations over him within the club that aren't on other players. There hasn't really been an understanding of what makes him tick from the coach and from other people inside the club since Arsene Wenger left. Because clearly Wenger, although it wasn't all smooth, got the best out of him in his Arsenal career. Unfortunately, it's turned into to a bit of a mess, the, the Mesut Ozil sort of Arsenal story. And it's one that he, uh, from what I know, is sort of desperate to get right. Uh, I don't think he would stick around, and he will stick around until the end of his contract, by the way. He's been very clear on that. I don't think he would do that just to collect his money. I think he loves the club and he wants to succeed and he wants them to succeed. But like many things at Arsenal, it feels like it's just gone <laughs> wrong. A final one on this, and it's not particularly, it's got nothing to do with how what he is like as a footballer. But it's always interesting when you do these profile pieces, we can't hear their voices. And do you know what? I actually thought today, I don't think I've ever heard Mesut Ozil interview. I couldn't tell you whether he's got a high voice, a low voice, whatever. But when you go and visit them for these profile pieces, did you like him? Yeah, I do. I, I, I've met him on a number of occasions at Arsenal's training ground after matches and also spoke to him for this interview we did um he speaks well his english is good after um initially conducting any kind of media in german when he joined arsenal his english has been pretty smooth throughout he can explain himself properly only a few words here or there that uh, he needs some help with he is thoughtful and deep um he feels strongly about a number of issues that he is keen to get across he doesn't hold back 
he <laughs> would probably like to reveal more on his version of what's happened inside Arsenal over the last few years. I don't think we know the whole picture. And yeah, he's he is a likable person. That those uh, who are close to him talk of him being generous. The amount of uh, charity work he does, uh, and that is not a PR move. He he does a hell of a lot, much of which we don't hear about particularly. A lot of which has been picked up by the wider media. He's very generous. Um, he wants a proportion of his money to be put to good use. He invites player. Uh, sorry, he invites. Um, unwell children into his executive box uh, not for PR most of it we don't hear about uh, and is extremely proactive on that front uh, equally there are people who for whom he's not their cup of tea I know that within the Arsenal dressing room uh, he like many other players over the years hasn't been popular with everyone or members of staff um, there have certainly been times this season earlier during the while things were going wrong with Unai Emery that some inside the club felt that he was not a great influence on the dressing room some in the hierarchy uh, felt that his salary was a problem and it would be better for both reasons to move him out of the club and there are some who feel really fondly of him so uh, it's fair to say Mesut Ozil is an enigma that we might never get to the bottom of now there are a whole host of club podcasts from the athletic available completely free from uh, the usual places this week for the Newcastle podcast pod on the time George Culkin and Chris Wall sat down with Rafael Benitez and asked him if he'd be interested in the Everton job. Yeah, we have been here for a while now. Uh, and then since we were here, obviously, we have the Liverpool uh, connections, but also we have a charity and we have been uh, working really hard with different charities here, with uh, Evertonians and Liverpoolians, so we don't have any problem with that. And I think that the fans here, they appreciate that. Obviously, it's a very difficult decision because um, the Liverpool fans would say, why? But some of the Everton fans would say, why? So <laughs> then, uh, in the end, it, I don't have this uh, to make this decision uh, now. What I have to do is to do well in Dalian and uh, see what happens in the future. So I have uh, still a good relationship with the uh, club, with the Liverpool fans, but I have some friends that they are Evertonian, so I don't have any problem to, to go back in the future and consider all the options. But I'm not applying for the position because I'm happy where we are and I'm happy what we are doing. And you never know, but at least it's not that um, I go against uh, this idea because that uh, if I have to choose and stay close to my family, uh, why not? And I'm sure that the fans will say, listen, if he wants to get a job and wants to stay where he's happy, so I think that the, the fans will appreciate that too. And you can hear that interview with Rafa Benitez in full when Pod on the Tyne drops later this week. Let's talk to Simon Hughes, who covers Liverpool for The Athletic, because we're going to talk uh, Jurgen Klopp with Simon. But just if Benitez did go to Everton, how would that change his standing for Liverpool fans, do you think? I don't think it would. I mean, it, he's he's already done this with Chelsea, obviously. Not, let's not forget um, mm. six or seven years ago, obviously going to manage a rival club. He won the Champions League at Liverpool, didn't he? It, it, I think it probably gets overlooked a little bit outside the city, just how much uh, respect certainly people have broadly for the work that he does inside the city of Liverpool still. you know, I think that, that the attitudes from Evertonians has, has definitely softened towards him over the last... Over the last few years, obviously not being active within within the Premier League, within the, the boundaries of Merseyside. I mean, I, I speak to a lot of Evertonians and there seems to be quite a lot of appetite for, for, for Benitez to come in. But from what I've been told over the last few days, I think I think, I think Rafa would be certainly interested in that job. But, but I, I get the impression from listening to people who've got 
connections to to the boardroom at Everton that there's not a great appetite at boardroom level to bring Benitez in. I think you know the comments that he made all those years ago that they've been remembered for, mm. <laughs> you know, all these you know all these years later uh, about Everton being a small club. So I've got to be honest, I find it quite hard to see see him getting in at Everton at the moment. Um, Although, I mean, I think, he, you know, if you look at what Everton are actually looking for, I think he'd probably make the perfect fit on a, on a purely sporting uh, level. Um, and despite the, I suppose, the softening of, of attitudes towards him amongst the supporter base, from what I've been told, I think, on the on the boardroom level, I think it's a, it's going to be difficult for him to to change uh, the perception of, of who he is and what he's about. There's only a certain number of managers available, but the problem with Rafa is, you know, he's on a massive contract uh, in China, and it's, it's pretty similar to, to Vita Pereira, where you know he's getting paid a lot of money and to get him out of that contract. It's going to cost any club a lot of money, so I think that's probably explains why uh, you know we obviously saw Rafa uh, speak on Sky Sports last week about you know you could tell that the appetite was there for maybe to come back at some point but I think he's realistic enough to know the clubs aren't going to pay the amount of money that his, his, his buyout clause did uh, constitute you, you, You've got my level of cynicism there Simon in the, it, I've already been cynical earlier in the pod and I, <laughs> but I did think Benitez on Sky and he's talking to the Athletic I already start thinking well, I wonder I wonder what he's trying to push for anyhow let's move on to Jurgen Klopp you have details of his new contract first of all David Yeah so Jurgen Klopp's deal uh, was Perhaps the uh, icing on the cake of a brilliant week all round for Liverpool. It's really interesting. This deal kind of is in Klopp's mind, in part to see through some likely success this season, next and and beyond. They've already had success, of course, with the, the Champions League win last summer. But then the transition as well. And as one person put it to me, he wants to sort of lay the foundations for Liverpool after Klopp. Uh, and by that... I understand that FSG during the negotiations outlined a plan for Liverpool to win the title this year and next. And by which point many of Liverpool's uh, more senior players will probably need replacing. um, And many of the younger players will be really at a good age to come through and new signings that they're already identifying too. And so if it was the case that Liverpool dropped down the league table to a far lower position than they're occupying at the moment, that would be okay, provided that Klopp was keeping things on track um, in terms of the wider vision. There's no break clause in his contract. You could say that's expected but it does happen with many coaches. There were a few numbers moved around in in terms of the finances, but essentially it's an extension of the same deal. Uh, And also he, unsurprisingly, fielded quite a bit of interest from elsewhere. There's been long-standing interest from Bayern Munich. They've basically said to Klopp, whatever the money is, that's not a problem for us. If you ever consider leaving Liverpool, just let us know and we would love to take you. In the last two months, there's also been significant interest from China, huge money offers but uh, Jurgen Klopp didn't even consider entertaining any of those the only people that he sat down with was Liverpool however I shouldn't say that he sat down with them because it was his representatives he was so relaxed about the situation that he didn't even get involved in the conversations and there's one final thing is that Steven Gerrard signing a contract until the same year 2024 being announced on the same day as Klopp's um, didn't go unnoticed we know that the relations are good Uh, Klopp, Gerrard 
Gerard, Liverpool, Liverpool, Klopp are all in contact. Klopp and Gerard text each other, even recently. This idea that he might one day be uh, the Liverpool manager is not something they shy away from in conversations. I'm not saying there are talks, formal or informal, but it is something that has been mooted. And I think everyone would love to see it one day, but we're too far away to say if that would be a credible option. Although, although, sir, I mean, I know, I know, Liverpool are meticulous in their planning and cover every single detail. But that takes forward planning to a whole new level. If you can get a different club to sign their manager to the to the same length of deal that you're signing your manager to prepare for something forward that years down the line. I mean, that's remarkable. Well, I mean, I, I think. Uh, Listening to people at Liverpool, you know, at a very high level, you know, there's, they'd be happy for Jurgen Klopp to stay forever, really. <laughs> I mean, it, this, this is all based on the relationship, very close relationship between Klopp and Mike Gordon, who who is the member of FSG, pretty much runs things. He, although he's Boston-based, he, you know, he's, he's very close to everything that goes on uh, in Merseyside. And their relationship is, is as tight, I think, as you're going to get in football. Um, I remember after the Champions League final uh, last summer, I mean, we, we sort of caught him off guard um, in, in, in the, the mix zone in, in, uh, in Madrid. And, you know, he, he sort of said, you know, that the, he's been trying to, Get Jürgen to 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 sign a new deal, even at that point. And I, I just think it, from, it wasn't on Klopp's agenda. It wasn't on his, on his list of priorities because you know it's. I think he there's an understanding between both parties that you know they can have an honest conversation with one another. And from Klopp's point of view, I think he realised that this this could. You know, if he doesn't sign a new deal soon, it could it could affect the future because he sort of touched on it in his press conference the other day about you know players are wanting to know how long he's going to be there for. So if he can't offer any clarity on that, he might actually might miss out on some some players that they that they want. I think I, I think it is a bit coincidental that the, the Rangers deal with Steven Gerrard lasts the same time, but you know by then I think Steven Gerrard he, he's he's pragmatic enough to realise that you know he. He's still a young football manager. He's only at the very start of his cycle ranges, although he's done I think he's done a great job so far to, to, to sort of change the perception about who Rangers are. But he realises that he's still learning as a manager. Um so in twenty twenty four, which is obviously quite a long <laughs> way away from now, perhaps by then he'll have had a, a crude enough experience as manager and it would make sense for him to step into Jurgen Klopp's shoes. Simon, thank you very much. We will talk soon. Thank you, Sai. Cheers. Cheers. Simon Hughes, who covers Liverpool for The Athletic. OK, let's return to your column, uh, David. Nathan Ackie and Chelsea's pursuit of him. You write about this in the column. You've got an update on that. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually, because um, Nathan Ackie, we all know about the £40 million buyback clause that Chelsea have. It's her first option. So... Um, regardless of what other clubs do, whether, for example, Manchester City or Real Madrid offer £100 million, that doesn't really matter. If Chelsea want him, they get him for £40 million. The only difference would be if Chelsea step back or if Ake says, I don't want to go to Chelsea, uh, I want to go elsewhere, then then the um, situation will develop. The really interesting thing is that when Chelsea were handed their transfer ban, Bournemouth were delighted. It was a two-window transfer ban covering the summer of 2019 and January 2020. And before the next window after that, when they'd be able to buy again, the summer of 2020, the Ake buyback clause expired. However, Chelsea succeeded in their appeal against FIFA's uh, the length of FIFA's ban. 
the second window, January 2020, they were they were allowed to make signings, and that means they can now sign Aki for £40 million, but it is their last opportunity to do so, as my understanding goes. So a nervous wait for, for Bournemouth, uh, for, for especially with the fact that Ake is injured. Um, so that could influence the situation as well. And as things stand at the time of recording, Bournemouth don't have a specific replacement lined up. They bought in Lloyd Kelly last summer to partly cover it, sort of left-back and left-sided mm. central defence. Um, Charlie Daniels, who can play at left-back as well, is injured. And so um, they would make a signing anyway if Ake was to go, especially if he does. But I think that's a really interesting situation to watch over January. Uh, Don Firefield is the Athletic senior writer, uh, keeps across London football. Is it good, before I come on to the specifics of Ake and whether you think they want him, do you, do you think the transfer ban has been lifted at the right moment or the wrong moment for Chelsea? What's the feeling within the club? You know what, two weeks ago, I'd have said that, that it was a, a dangerous situation for Frank Lampard and, and Chelsea, that they risked disrupting a lot of the momentum mm. they've built up over the first half of the season with the young kids uh, who were finally getting their chances. They just signed you know, Callum Hudson-Odoi to a new new deal. Um, and, you know, what, what, what message would it send out to him if they then went and bought, a, say, a Wilfred Zaha-type player who would potentially block his pathway into the first team? Um, however, given their recent run of form, the four defeats in five, I actually think think now that, that Lampard will use that that form to to try and push the board into making signings to freshen things up and and offer a bit more strength in depth um, through through the squad um, and indeed the, the first team so actually it's proving quite timely we, we've been in the situation we put before with Chelsea with 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 better squads than this more experienced squads with this my mind goes back to Antonio Conte the second season there when Chelsea were in the Champions League and a, and a team that had swept all before them in the Premier League the, the previous season suddenly felt very, very stretched because they just didn't have the depth to cope with Champions League and Premier League football. And it, they really came unstuck that term. And, and there is the, the, the capacity for that to happen again. So a few signings in January wouldn't go amiss. So in the main, to bolster the squad, as you understand it, because the other side of that is I heard Lampard over the weekend talking about they haven't had a Hazard replacement. They haven't no. got the superstar who can turn the game on his own as Hazard could for them. Yeah, when I say squad, they, they need more numbers, but they need players who are first team ready. Right. So you know, finding a replacement for Hazard, I mean, that's that's quite a task. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not something that you can really do and achieve in in January usually because uh, you know play, clubs are going to be very reluctant to lose stellar performers uh, mid-season, which makes the Zaha situation quite intriguing. Yeah, I was going to ask there you is, about that. There's a player that they can get if they offer the money that Crystal Palace have been asking um, suitors for. Now, you know, that would still constitute a, a record signing for Chelsea. We're talking £80 million plus, and that, that valuation hasn't come down for Crystal Palace. He is still worth 80 to 100 million to Crystal Palace. Uh, he is still a player that will keep them in the Premier League potentially. So why would they suddenly accept less money for him mid-season? Uh, so that, that's a real test for for Chelsea and whether they they're convinced that he that they wanted to push the boat out that much on a player. But yeah, it's it's an it's a it's an intriguing situation um, with them and and defensively. I mean, look. They look stretched. They look stretched, and which makes Ake an option for them to pursue certainly mid mid season. You know whether there was a clause or not 
with him, they would have to be looking at players like that. Look what he offers to them. A, a left-sided centre-half, they don't have too many of those readily available at the moment. He's a player with, with actually quite a lot of Premier League experience that he's built up with Bournemouth. He's a player that knows the setup at Chelsea. He knows what he's coming into. And he's a player that's that, that would back himself to break into that Chelsea team and make a real impact. So there are a lot of reasons why Chelsea would pursue that deal mid-season if they, if they feel as if they can get it. Yeah, Dom, I think the fear at Bournemouth is that that deal will happen. It's just... Um... It comes down to Chelsea and Ake as opposed to them. Uh, and on the Zaha one, it's quite interesting that I think um, possibly, I don't know this for certain, but why the Chelsea links have escalated. One, I think they would have been uh, Chelsea keen to sign him last summer if they didn't have their transfer ban. And two, I think he has changed agencies or is in the process of doing so and uh, and is perhaps being represented if a Chelsea deal was to happen by... Uh, somebody who has very close links to yeah. Chelsea. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and it's my understanding is that, that agent that you're talking about, Pastorello, the, the Italian agent that, that has worked closely with Chelsea over with Antonio Conte, for example, in recent years, um, I think that the mandate would be with a view to a Chelsea move. I'm not sure that he is technically... Uh, Zaha's agent no. in the same, you know, not in a conventional sense, but then I don't, don't think a lot of deals are struck that way these days, anyway. Um, <laughs> what conve- so it, conventionally? Well, I, I know, don't think many transfer deals are conventional. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> but but the reality is that if, if look, Pastorello was 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 all over the the media about ten days back, pushing uh, a potential move for for, for Zaha despite the fact that Zaha's got a contract until 2023, mm. uh, which I, I looked at and thought, blimey, this is scandalous. I mean, how, how is he getting away with this? But that is how transfers play out these days. Um, I, I, I'm still, I would still be surprised if, if Chelsea forked out £80 million plus in January for Wilfred Zaha. Uh, I can see that, that move happening at some point in the future, possibly in the summer, but it would still... It would still take me aback if if they were willing to to, to spend a club record fee on a player that that is is integral to everything Palace do, but but you know hasn't scored ten goals in a season very often, often doesn't have ten assists in a season. Look at look at what Chelsea need. I'd say they need a left back, they need a centre half, they need a striker who will provide competition uh, for Tammy Abraham, and I don't think Wilfred Zaha as a central striker works vibe sent us this and and therefore you can both do this on Jaden Sancho who's who's the front runner to sign Jaden Sancho because Chelsea have been linked with him as well Dom David wrote about that a couple of weeks back and Chelsea weren't in that in that list of potential um clubs for a move but I think he would be perfect for Chelsea he's a he's a, a young player um he could he could step in they're, they're going to lose Pedro in the summer they might lo- well lose William as well there's suggestions that William will probably end up signing a one year contract at, at Chelsea but it may well be a situation similar to David Luiz last last summer whereby you know Chelsea were almost hedging their bets and they could if there is interest to come the summer and he signed this deal they may actually end up getting a fee for him but you know bringing in a player of 19 20 years who's an England international who is clearly a player of vast potential fits the sort of mould of, of Lampard youthful side and will offer them a, a very different threat um, that they, you know, a threat they don't have at the moment. I think he, I think there is a, that, that move would make sense. There is a lot to attract Chelsea to Jadon Sancho come the summer. 
Um, but it, you know, it's going to take a vast fee to get him. And I think that could be the key point because it's going to be well in excess of a hundred million pounds, maybe something like a hundred and twenty to thirty million euros. Uh, and there will be huge competition for his signature as well. So it will come down to what packages are being offered to him. Um, at the time of the report I did, it was in no particular order. Real Madrid and Barcelona from Spain and, and Manchester United and Liverpool from England. I've since heard suggestions and it's been reported elsewhere that Manchester City are now at the table, having previously been asked just to um, be kept informed of the situation. Uh, but still, I've heard nothing on Chelsea. And it's strange because, like you explained, the need, but also the fact that he grew up that old classic as being a Chelsea supporter or following them to some extent um but the fee would be astronomical dom i was going to um talk to you about west ham as well but um that i think could be a whole podcast in itself to be honest with you so we'll, we'll <laughs> next week we'll get you on back again to talk about west ham pleasure cheers so. cheers dom cheers dom uh, dom firefield the athletic senior writer so we did that question from vibe uh, we got one from jack b as well and you can send questions in any time to us uh to put to David on the podcast. Just use Twitter to do that. Send it to either of us. Although if they're about Arsenal, just send them directly to David. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Jack B, uh, the possible de- destinations of Haaland at Red Bull Salzburg, and because obviously Manchester United are the apparent front runners for him. And the follow-up question from Jack B is, therefore, do you think United have a list for January and will go strong? Well, of course they'll have a list. Most clubs do, and they will go strong for Haaland we know that they're in talks we've spoken about it on a number of occasions on this podcast and written it in my column as well that Manchester United uh, have been in for Haaland for a long time there's the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer link he used to manage him at Mulder Um, we reported that his father had been seen at Carrington um, and that uh, sources at Manchester United were convinced weeks ago that he would be signing there is a complication with Mino Raiola his agent Uh, it's understood that he would like him to go to a different club first Uh, there's suggestions that Leipzig have um, uh, first refusal on a a much lower fee but there are ways to get around that there'll be huge interest in him as well would he want to drop down to the Europa League mid-season from the Champions League would he sign and then be loaned back for the rest of the season all sorts of things could happen on that one but it's certainly a, a target of Manchester United we know that for sure and it wouldn't surprise us if they got him is your understanding that they will buy in the transfer window yeah, I think so. I think yeah. that's that's the aim. Um, Laurie Whitwell, my colleague, mentioned two midfielders and a striker being the priority, central midfielders. Um, so, yeah, all indications are that uh, Manchester United will be one of the busier teams from towards the top half of the Premier League. And a final thing on United, Davis Column this week has a lovely story about a 100-year-old United fan. But we're not going to say any more on that because we always tease you. We tease every at week. The end. Uh, you need to subscribe to The Athletic to read in full all of David's articles. Uh, and by listening to us, you can get a 40% discount on subscription. So you go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman and you get that 40% discount. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. All our podcasts, though, completely free. Fresh insight from our writers and special guests. Don't forget Rafael Benitez on the Newcastle pod this week. Subscribe if you want. Leave us a nice review if you prefer I mean leave us a horrible review if you want but we prefer the nice ones Uh, and we'll be back next week with even more thanks for listening we will cheers bye